Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. It's Ancient History Week and I'm so excited. Chris, who have we got on? Uh, yeah, Today we have uh, Dr Adam Parker, Curator of Archaeology at the Yorkshire Museum and Visiting Fellow at the Open University. And he's here today to talk to us about his specialism of ancient magic. So, uh, Adam, welcome to History Hack. How are you doing? Hi, I'm very well. Very pleased to be here. Thank you very much. I'm so looking forward to this. I'm not going to spoil why just yet, but I'm going to let Chris start this first question off. Uh, we should really start by saying, what sort of magic do we mean? So before we get to the content warnings that Alina has alluded to, I just want to set the scene a little bit for what, what magic is or what magic was. There is a little bit of a problem in the academic research of magic that as a community, we haven't really decided what that word means or if it is actually an appropriate word to use to describe the stuff that we're describing. This has caused a little bit of tension. Uh, so there are two very broad camps, if I want to be reductive about it, in the study, one of which suggests that magic is an appropriate word, an appropriate rubric to use to describe describe the group of objects, the phenomenon that we use it for. There is another kind of polar opposite camp, which suggests that most of that stuff could be better explained by other broad categories, such as religion, or maybe it's a sort of kind of ritual activity that belongs to something different. When I kind of started my research, I was pretty militantly in the first of those camps. And the more and more I come across it, I worry less about exactly how I'm trying to define what this is. This is an issue of semantics, right? What is magic? What do we call it? And what do we mean by that? And um, broadly, I take quite an open approach to this now. Um, and I think it is an appropriate word to use to describe the things that I'm going to talk about. Um, if only because I don't have any better language to be able to describe those things yet. If that comes along, we might be talking about something else entirely. But yeah, magic may or may not exist, but let's talk about it anyway. What I actually mean that magic is or was a phenomenon that allowed people to interact with the world through supernatural means this is all a little bit technical and how you want to think about it but basically this lets people take power from a supernatural realm and employ it in their own lives from my point of view that's a little bit different to religion so it's if there is that dichotomy it's slightly different to that because religion requires you to ask a god or a deity for help you need to enter into some sort of bargain say help me in the, in the roman world help me whatever god there are lots of them i'm going on this dangerous sea crossing help me to do that and i will dedicate an altar to you and sacrifice 
500 pigeons or whatever it's going to be. Magic is different because it allows you to circumvent that whole kind of official process and just say, here's some power. I know these magic words and I've got this magical material that is now mine and I'm going to use it to do this thing. That thing, at least in Roman magic, which is what I'm talking about, can be trying to divine your future, trying to use amulets to protect you from supernatural harm, trying to curse people and do horrible things to them using that power and try to make people fall in love with you. All sorts of weird and wonderful different things. There's a very broad church, for want of a better description, of what magic actually was used for. In the ancient world, one of the clearest concepts that helps us helps me understand what magic was is the evil eye. The evil eye is the Roman embodiment of bad luck, supernatural, bad things happening. If you want to think about it, in, in Roman art, it is depicted as a disembodied eye. It really is easy to think about it as the eye of Sauron from the Lord of the Rings franchise, all right? Think about a big burning eye on top of a tower. The Roman evil eye isn't burning, it's not on fire, but it is a giant eye that is lidless and unblinking. And they kind of work in similar ways, all right? So the evil eye was attracted to things that people placed value on. So maybe you had lots of riches, then the evil eye, you might be drawn the gaze of the evil eye. Maybe you have a beautiful new baby and you could draw the gaze of the evil eye. In the Lord of the Rings, the evil eye is drawn towards the precious. And in the Roman world, it is precious things that the evil eye is trying to catch his gaze on. If, if the evil eye's gaze did land on something, bad things would then happen. So is the understanding of how this phenomenon worked. So maybe you are with us with with the small baby. Let's take that as an example. Um, the evil eye is particularly drawn to this kind of thing. You look upon the sleeping baby. The baby wakes up. It's crying. It's sad. Oh, no, you have drawn the gaze of the evil eye. This is a bad thing to have happened. There are much more serious consequences for drawing the gaze of the evil eye, but it's kind of a spectrum of different things. And there are definitely places where the evil eye seems to particularly follow its gaze. Its gaze does move around a little bit. So transitionary places and landscapes so thresholds into and out of buildings they're dangerous places crossroads can be dangerous places and certain times of the day or certain people in certain situations can draw the gaze of the evil eye it's just understood to have existed and to be a bad thing and quite a lot of roman magic certainly quite a lot of amulets were designed to try and stop the evil eye affecting your life in a meaningful way I have a question. It kind of relates to this, really. So, in theory, we would say that going to an oracle, like, for example, Adelphi, would be religious. But would that not also be classified as magic? And therein lies the grey area. So, there is, <laughs> it is... Really, when you break it down, it doesn't work to a this is a magic and this is a religion kind of dichotomy because people can come up with examples that say, actually, there's a little bit of a different flavor in all these things. Maybe there's a big gray area in the middle. Some practices might fall in one camp or the other. So like I say, I tend not to worry about it too much and think that they definitely intersect. That is, that is unambiguous. There is a connection between these two concepts as we are defining them. But I'm not going to worry too much about trying to say this is one and this is the other at this point. But that's exactly the kind of thing that you could bring up to challenge <laughs> that, that approach that I've suggested. I completely agree. And it's the way, so for example, we spoke with Michael Scott about this idea of the Oracle at Delphi and the whole argument of, was it really a divine intervention? Was she really serving the gods? But I think in a way it's also to do more or less with modern 
sort of science and being able to trick people into believing that it is either magical or divine or whatever, even though some people are saying, oh, she was inhaling drugs or she was sitting on top of some sort of mountain that um, expelled some sort of gas or something along those lines. But I don't know. What would be your theory on this? It's a bit of a tricky question, but I think that there is evidence in the archaeological record, certainly of Roman Britain, which is really where I study, that there are objects that show technical and deliberate manipulation to try and achieve this goal of getting the supernatural powers to do things. And I'm going to tangentially talk about some of these as, as we go along, hopefully. With the Oracle at Delphi, I, I really do feel that is an issue of semantics, isn't it? It's us trying to impose a structure of language and a structure of understanding the world, our world, onto the ancient world, when when you really start to challenging it, sometimes some of those different categories are going to start to collapse. So then, at least from my point of view, I, I, I kind of look at what are we left with then? If we're not going to worry about semantics, I'm not going to worry too much about these broad categories. Let's look at the stuff. Let's not take this as a top-down approach, is, is this magic, is this religion? Let's look at some objects, try and find some material, some evidence, some, material, some something in the archaeological record in particular, and say, actually, let's, let's look at that, let's address that, let's challenge that, and try and build this argument upwards. And that, that's really where a lot of my um, research interest comes into, into kind of into magic, is through objects, materials, and materiality. It's, it's, it's a bottom-up approach, which is directly designed to challenge that the problems of coming at it from the top, which is what you're alluding to. So let's stick with that. You've just mentioned material culture evidence. Let's stick with the evidence. What evidence do we have? And I love part of Chris's question here. Are there spell books kicking about? Is there something that you would just walk in and have like hidden under your floorboard, this giant spell book, and it would give you everything and all the answers that you need? That might sound like a naive question, but the answer to that is yes, there are. Oh, this okay. is a thing. A, I've just been getting down. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one of the best bodies of evidence for Roman magic in particular is a group of documents called the Greek Magical Papyri. So the Greek Magical Papyri, which are primarily found in Roman Egypt, are a series of papyrus spellbooks dating from the centuries BC to about the 4th century AD. Some of them are written in Greek and some of them in Demotic and a very few in Latin and a few other languages between them. And what they are is a DIY guide to doing your own magic. It is to achieve this effect, get these objects, say these things, write this stuff and do it in this way at this time. It really is that straightforward. Um, there is an excellent translation of them that is available for free. If I may shamelessly quote from from the first of the magical papyri. Yes, please. So, this is what I was going to say. Please give us a spell that maybe, or a love spell, if you've got one, that Chris might be able to use that one. I can send you the index okay. afterwards if you're really interested in, in finding out what fun demons and things you can summon. So in the first section of the first magical papyrus, um, a demon comes who is an assistant who will reveal everything to you clearly and will be your companion and will eat and sleep with you. Let's not worry about that too much. Take together, therefore... Two of your own fingernails and all of the hairs from your head. Take a Circean falcon and deify it in the milk of a black cow. Drown it in milk. After you have mixed Attic honey with the milk, so you've drowned the falcon in milk and honey, and you've chopped off your fingernails and your hair. That's where we're up to so far. 
Once you've deified the falcon, wrap it with an undyed piece of cloth and place it beside your fingernails along with your hair and take a piece of choice papyrus and inscribe on them papyrus in myrrh the following. And the following is a series of uh, the Greek vowels which appear in a pyramid where there's more letters on each line as it goes down. So then take, take all this and set it in the same manner along with the hairs and the fingernails and plaster it with uncut frankincense and old wine. That's the first paragraph. And then that, that, that papyrus goes on to tell you all the fun magic words that you need to shout um, and when you need to do it. Uh, so you have to do it at a certain time of day and do it for seven days on the row and do all of these other things to try and get this demon assistant who's going to come and tell your future for you. So, yeah, this is a thing. This is a body of evidence that exists that helps us tell us about ancient magic unfortunately there's nothing like that in the roman northwest and certainly not in roman britain so we rely on other sources of evidence there are some useful um bits of epigraphic evidence or so written language that survives on particularly curses and there is another group of objects called lamellae in roman britain lamellae are really fantastic things uh, they are amulets which are designed for a specific purpose um the most complete one of these from Britain is a series of 16 lines in Greek. The first three are all weird and wonderful symbols that don't mean anything. They're called characters, which means characters. And they're meant to be nonsensical words. That It's just like arcane knowledge. It's just an extra little bit of magic bump that you put at the top of your spell. That's the kind of stuff that appears in the magical papyri. And then there's a series of um, descriptions basically saying this amulet is going to protect Terentia the daughter of Fabia during childbirth. And that is what that amulet is for. This thing was rolled up and it was worn in a little amulet case on somebody's neck. And that kind of, that says, this is an object that was designed to protect somebody. This is really what magic is about. It is about making a change in the world by doing this thing. That lamellae had was protect that woman at that certain point in her life by rolling up the amulet and wearing it. It was during childbirth. Um, and these sorts of bits of evidence are corroborated through various different other classical sources lots of the ancient authors wrote about things which we may describe as magic they may have described as science or religion or history or other things with them but we can unpick parts of this evidence there isn't a complete picture but there is a really useful body of evidence to draw on as part of my, my phd in the open university i made a catalog of all the things that i think i could argue to have been magical from roman britain and there's over two and a half thousand objects from there so there's quite a big corpus of evidence that we can look at. And that's just one Roman province. So there are tens of thousands of magical objects to be found in the ancient world. So anyone that knows Alina knows that she has two favourite subjects. And the first one is the Holocaust. We can't get away from that. And the other one is phalluses. Now, I understand, if we're talking about Rome, how long before we get on to phalluses? Very quickly, in fact. <laughs> when we look at the, the evil eye that I mentioned is, is the kind of embodiment of bad luck, there is a group of objects, a group of carvings and objects, in fact, from Roman Britain and the other northwestern provinces, which show the evil eye. So that the eye of Sauron, a disembodied eye surrounded by all the things that you can use to fight it. So it's the things that dispel it, the things that it's afraid of. And some of them are like uh, weapons. So they're usually swords and tridents stabbing the eye. There's usually some bitey fighty animals like leopards and cent big centipedes and scorpions and a raven. Um, and then there are the other things which are like definitely amulets. And one of them is always the phallus. 
So a disembodied phallus was one of the most widely encountered uh, amulets in the Roman world. In that data set from Roman Britain I've just talked about, 2,500 object, 500 of them were phallic. This works because the evil eye is basically a bit of a perv. When you are capturing the gaze of the evil eye, it's getting fixed on you. It's looking at you, and then the bad stuff's going to happen. In the situation that you've got a curious or really wacky image on it, it's going to get distracted by it. And this is what phallic pendants, phallic fingerings, and all the sort of amulets were for. They're meant to catch the gaze of the evil eye, and it'll go, whoa, what are you wearing? And then it's not looking at you, it's looking at the pendant. And then you've captured the gaze of the evil eye. The Latin name for phallic amulets is fascina, which from where we get the word fascinate, because the gaze of the evil eye is fixed on these objects. That is what they're designed to do. There is an incredible piece of research of experimental archaeology by someone called Alyssa Whitmore. And in this, she got a phallic pendant from uh, a Roman site in Britain called Piercebridge. That's in County Durham. And a sidebar, this is a County Durham accent, if you can't place what this is. So this, this is from near Peasbridge. She found, she got this phallic pendant and she made a replica of it. And she got her partner to wear this replica, one-to-one scale, also in copper alloy, like the pendant was. And he wore this while he was doing some activities. So the, she put him on a treadmill. He went for a wander around the shops. He was playing cards. They were watching TV. They were just talking. And she filmed it. And then she reviewed all this footage and found that even though this little pendant was sitting on the guy's chest, um, it bounced about a little bit. But when it came to rest, it was always pointing outwards because the phallus, in when it's used as a Roman amulet, is always erect. I'm going to throw in a free fun fact, uh, a new word, what I think is a new word to your listeners here, which is the word iffy phallic, which is a technical way of describing a phallus that is erect. Um, I've had to have a research paper where I had to describe something as an ithyphallic zoomorphic macrophallus, which is a technical way of describing a big wang with wings and legs. This is the world in which I exist. <laughs> Can I just say that is such a mouthful, no pun intended. <laughs> so this, this phallic pendant, Alyssa's reconstructed phallic pendant. So it was iffy phallic, so it was erect, and it had a large pair of testes on the back of it. So it kind of like stuck to her partner when he was doing all these things. And through most of the time, it rested, and it was pointing forward. So it's like uh, it, it sort of projects its power forward is how they're meant to work. I know this is daft. Um, it's like it's it's a lightning conductor for bad luck. That is what these objects are for. As you move through the world, it is moving forward with you, pointing the, w- the way towards good luck and good health. You've just dispelled one of the biggest myths, and I get really annoyed when people ask me this. And they're like, oh, my God, did you did you see all those like penises and like Pompeii? It points you straight to the brothel. On that specific point there, that it is a lie. It is, well, maybe that's too far. It is received knowledge, and it is provably untrue. There's a very specific phallus that's in the floor. I can't remember what street it is. I'll tweet about it afterwards, um, which points towards the Lupinare. But this is a problem for several reasons. Oh, you got me on my soapbox now. The, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll try and go through. I'll, I'll calm down and go through them in order. No, it's good. It's good. It's good. We like this. Keep going. 
for, st- for starters, when you do anything in Pompeii, there's a palimpsest problem. So you don't know which came first. This is a con- circumstantial relationship between a carving that's set into the floor and a building where that function has been identified. So you don't know which one of those is actually in relationship to the other. There could have been years apart and they're actually being used or I don't know, maybe one has been there for a century and then the brothel's been made. You don't know. More importantly, that's not what phallic carvings were for. Uh, There are hundreds and hundreds of them identified from the Roman world and they appear in transitional liminal places. They're usually on gateways. They're usually on doorways. Um, There are these examples that I talked about where the phallus is um, fighting the evil eye. There is a whole series of carvings where it's just a one-on-one battle between a phallus and an evil eye. And there are some of them at Pompeii that show this distinct dichotomy between the thing that protects you and the thing it's protecting you from. So in the wider corpus of all these, all this evidence, that just doesn't work. Number three, and it's probably the most compelling of them, if you ignore the, all the magic theory and what's that about, is that that's not how advertising works in Pompeii. People scrawl on walls the price of, uh, of prostitutes, of the price of people in a brothel. They have drawings of what they are. You don't need something that is so subtle that you need to look at this little thing in the floor and go, oh, that's where it's going towards. It would have had the function of that building scrawled all over the front of it. So it just that's not that's not how that works. And just one more question. Sorry, I'm going to keep going about the phalluses. There's been, I've seen charms that have a double-ended phallus. Is there something to do with magic or or specifically luck when it comes to those double-ended phalluses? If I pull us back out a little bit to think about what magic was in order to answer that question, um, there is an element of magic which requires exoticness, arcane knowledge, weird and wacky stuff being built and added into it. Um, the the anthropologist Bronislaw Malinowski, who did a study of what magic, religion, and science was by looking at an ethnographic population, he lived with the Triband Islands Islanders for several years, and, and there's a there's a phrase of his that is just lives rent free in my brain, which is um, magic can be categorized by you ready for this the coefficient of weirdness. Beautiful, it's a luxurious phrase, which basically means is the stranger something is, the more magical power that it probably had. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
come back down from from that lofty tower to think about the 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 doubled phallic pendant thing. It's kind of a doubling up of magic. It's making something so 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 it's an image which is known to be an amulet. It's been doubled up with that, so that in itself is just naturally a times two is better. But also, it's then creating something that doesn't exist in the natural world. So it's creating something that looks a little bit weird and a little bit supernatural. And particularly with phallic objects, this runs and runs and runs and runs. So you get weird things. So you get particularly phallic animals. So you'll get a, a how many times can we say phallus in a podcast? So we have a, a, a phallic beast, which I'm for the benefit of your listeners, I'm drawing with my hands with um, two big li- lion legs. It has a tail, which is also a phallus. Um, they have um, a mammalian phallus between the legs in a, for want of a better word, normal way. And they have wings on these things as well. Um, and they just get the stranger and stranger they are, the more magical power these might have. With phallic things in particular, they are supposed to be a little bit funny. There is another element of fighting the evil eye, which is laughter. Laughter is the best medicine. You're probably familiar with that aphorism. But in the ancient world, there could be power in that idea. If that you are in a stressful situation, maybe you're in one of those crossroads and the danger of the evil eyes on you and you look across the street and you see a, a wind chime this is what i'm actually describing this is a tintinabulum it's a phallic wind wind chime from pompeia herculaneum this weird thing and you go ha, funny or maybe that is the that is all you need to do to be able to dispel the power of the evil eye because you it's brought a little bit of joy to you are, are the funny phalluses the best phalluses what a question and one that i've never been asked <laughs> i don't know well i mean <laughs> here's, a, here's a phrase I've never yeah. said as well. All phalluses could be funny if that's what they're supposed to be for as amulets. <laughs> so this idea that they're lightning conductors, that could be linked to it as well, that there are all these people wearing these daft amulets and it's supposed to be a big in-joke across the Roman Empire. We could even go that far. The thing that we can counter this with a little bit is that it's actually it's not just about them being funny things, it's about them being disembodied human parts which are kind of powerful because they're they're generative they create more people is that there are also female sexual um parts that are used as amulets so we have vulvate mounts a mount is a technical archaeological description which is a thing which attaches to something else and we're not really sure how so if if we know it's on a belt it would be a belt mount if we know it's on a harness it'll be a harness mount so in your mind's eye, imagine a thin sheet of copper alloy, about three centimeters long, and it's hexagonal. So, um, yeah, a hexagonal shape, shape, a hexagonal plate of copper alloy, and in the middle of it, there is an oval. That oval is domed, so it's sticking out from the back, and it has a longitudinal incision all the way down its long edge. So it looks a little bit like a coffee bean. That is what a vulvate imagery looks like in Roman Britain and certainly in the Northwest provinces. Yeah, you might be thinking about that as like, I need a lesson in anatomy, but no, what this is doing is it's actually it's showing female sexual parts at one step removed. There's both a literary and visual pun that connects female sexual body parts with cowrie shells. Um, if you can imagine a cowrie shell, it is rounded. There are bits that go in, there are edges, Google it if you're not sure what I'm talking about, and hopefully your anatomy lessons will be sufficient to make that kind of semiotic limp link between those two things. 
what the vulvate mounts are, gonna, are doing copper alloy is they are copying cowrie shells. So it's one step removed from actual female body parts. But they're designed to do the same thing. It's still a sexual body part in a strange place and so would attract the gaze of the evil eye and dispel all the negative uh, malignant forces that can be happened to it. Where they particularly get weird is that vulvate mounts are mostly associated with horses. So they are particularly associated with uh, harness straps and Roman cavalry sites. So within the Roman psyche, there seems to be this understanding that male body parts could be carved on buildings and worn by people, and not just by men, but men, women, adults, children. It's, it is, it's an amulet for everybody. It's for the whole family, fun for the whole family. Um, but the female sexual body parts seem to be associated with horses. I don't have a good explanation of why that distinction exists, but it is archaeologically sound. I have a theory. Would you like to hear my theory? I would love it. It is especially done for Roman soldiers so they realise and remind themselves what they're missing and fighting for. <laughs> Sold. Let's write a paper. I think that's the only logical thing I can think of, really, to do with horses, because predominantly men ride the horses, right? So it's got to be there to remind men of either what they've got at home or what they could get at the local brothel. I think it's a dangerous game to be trying to apply logic to all these different types of Roman magic. <laughs> so before we move on to the next question, what is your, it's going to sound really weird, what is your favourite phallus? <laughs> I don't say your own. I actually have an answer to this question, which is a straight answer to this question. Um, there are a group of amulets in the Auction Museum, Museum Accurate, hooray, um, from a site called Catterick in North Yorkshire. And it is a group of six phallic pendants. And it's not just a phallus on its own. It is a phallus, and then the other end of it, it is a fist. These are fist and phallus amulets. So like you had the, you mentioned the double phallic amulet, this is a different variant. The fist is showing a symbol of a clenched fist with a thumb underneath the forefinger. This is the manus fica, or mano fico. It is, means the fig sign. It is a rude gesture in the ancient world. It is also a rude gesture in some parts of the Mediterranean world today, so don't go around doing it if you happen to be on holiday whilst listening to this. So the other end... So so this this is a different amulet. This is a gesture that people did to protect themselves. It's like crossing your fingers for good luck, but a little bit more vulgar. Um, it's almost like sticking your fingers up at the evil eye. And this image is captured and put on the opposite side of these little phallic pendants and there are six of them and they were strung together as a whole little pendant and it was found in the grave of an infant so they were designed to it's something that couldn't have been worn by an infant because they were huge that's so probably owned by an adult but then that protection has been passed to the tragically deceased infant but as a group of objects they are almost unparalleled and they're showing two different magical phenomena in use together and that is my favorite roman phallus chris do you have a favorite phallus um, yeah, just looking at this guy with the with like the four penises coming off his head and the giant. I, I mean, I just feel woefully inadequate now. <laughs> Quite away. So that is now your favourite phallus, Christopher, is it? <laughs> no comment. Um, it, 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 I, I'll give it. It's very impressive. <laughs> I think I'm very magical. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think mine isn't a uh, a pendant or anything like that, even though I would love to have wind chimes with like loads of phalluses on it. It's like my dream to have that. But for me, it's always been the statues of Priapus in the House of the Veti in Pompeii because they have like these huge statues with a giant Priapus and water comes out of it. Like how freaking cool is that? It is religion, probably religion rather than magic though. Exactly, but it's still pretty cool. I don't know, Chris. Would you like to have a statue uh, with water coming out of his phallus? Um, well, I once said that I wanted to have a statue for when I ruled the world, and a friend of mine said, yeah, good, it would give the pigeon something else to shit on. So, yeah, why not? <laughs> You're awful. Right, Chris, go on. I've done all what the talking. Secret... Well, I was just about to ask, um, what about your secret Santa present from last year with the with the phallus riding a horse with a cowboy hat on picture? Oh, no comment. <laughs> It's like one of those little lead medieval right. jobbies. It's an image oh, it's that's an adult colouring book. Travel across time. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> How far have we got? Um, so, is there any evidence of? Um, well, you kind of mentioned it already, but um, is there any other evidence of uh, magic protecting children as well as adults? There's a few different types of amulets that you can you can sure you can use to protect children as well as adults and um, there's three or four I'll, I'd, I'd like to mention um there are two which come up in the literature quite a lot which are called bulli so bulla is the singular and lunuli which is lunula is the singular of that one these are two different things uh bulla is latin for bubble um so if you picture like imagine two tiny bowls with a flange around the end facing in towards each other. So it's like a little ball with a big flange around the outside of it, and they're tiny little things, half centimetre, centimetre kind of size, sometimes a little bit bigger. And these in the academic literature become particularly associated with highborn, so patrician in in the the upper levels of um, the hierarchical Roman society, with young children particularly young boys, um, even emperors. So the Emperor Nero, when he's in power, there are a series of busts that are kind of issued or created around him and where he's looking very youthful and he's wearing one of these bubble pendants around his neck. Um, And there are also some carvings of young boys on the Arapacus in Rome and various other things that kind of really show high-status young lads wearing this thing. And they turn up in the archaeological record. Nearly all of them, from the first century are made out of gold. So gold in Rome, the Roman Empire, is still quite rare comparatively when you look at all the other materials and particularly all the other metals. So there is a financial value in that material. Um, Where this all falls down a little bit, this kind of traditional review of what these amulets are, is that they're associated with young boys who are quite from rich families, is when you look at Roman Britain. So the evidence from Roman Britain has seven or eight different bullae. Only one of them is made out of gold, and it's not from a useful context. The others are made out of silver and copper alloy, and these are visually exactly the same things. But they are not associated with young boys, but with the graves of young adult women in the third and fourth centuries. So young women who were 18 to 23 in that kind of broad age bracket. What this suggests is that there is a probable use of this pendant that's associated with these rich kids. Then at some point over the Roman Empire, as time drifts, the use of those amulets 
has changed, that it gets repurposed for a different group of people. Now, there's some recent research actually that looks at what is inside a bullet. It's not just the shape of the pendant in itself. It's an amulet case. It's a capsule. It contains a material, a magical material. And there is various bits of evidence from across the empire that include uh, weird little coins. So like a tiny clipped coin, uh, rose thorns, snapdragon seeds, various different nuts and stuff. And so it's not just the image of the object itself. When I talked about the first century and the, and the imperial statues and that, that is so it's the image of that with the emperor that makes it powerful. But obviously how this object is really being used on the ground is slightly different is that it is it is capturing something it's got a powerful little object that is hidden inside of it it may not even be known to the wearer what was in those objects presumably somebody's put in at some point but we don't know um a lot where it's been bought like that whether it's been specifically crafted but because of the different contents of those sort of objects that suggests that it might have had a different use that maybe it's protecting against different harms maybe i don't know migraines growing pains toothache whatever it's going to be um that we lose that information in the archaeological record but when you the point i'm trying to make is when you actually look at these objects from this bottom-up approach we can challenge some traditional understandings of what they're for the second group of objects lamellae lunuli the second group of objects lunuli are almost always made out of silver or copper alloy in roman britain and a lunula is a crescent shape so imagine the crescent moon, but on its edge. So the, the little arms point down and there's a little suspension loop at the top of them. There is an incredible series of portraits from the Fayum in, in Egypt, which include um, pictures of people whilst they're on their mummified caskets. So the, the, the Fayum portrait paintings. There are several of these portraits that show young girls and also adult women wearing a lunula pendant on a choker quite tight around the neck. What the lunula is supposed to be doing is it's an image of the moon. Now we can stray into religion here a little bit. Um, so the moon is the domain of Selene. So we have Sol and Helios and Selene. Selene is the moon goddess. Um, she is particularly associated and sometimes interchangeable with Diana, the huntress, famously the virgin huntress in Roman mythology. Um, I mean, virgin in that she has lots of female consorts rather than male consorts. So, so you know, Diana is particularly associated with protecting young women. She is, she is their protector. That is what that is one of her domains. And these objects are meant to channel that a little bit. They're also mentioned in the spell books in the Greek magical papyri. And, and how to create one. So sometimes they have little bits of text that are scrawled on them. Sometimes you have to say a prayer to Selene or to the moon or to Diana or to some other supernatural powers in creating them. Um, and the, the other things that I mentioned already, so some of them might have just been bought off a shelf because they're almost mass produced, but things like uh, that lamella protecting Fabia and Terentia during childbirth, there is kind of a production, there's a ritual, there's a craft that's involved in creating that amulet. And when you're looking particularly in the protection of children, there might have been a real process, a real curated, bespoke approach to try and get that amulet right to protect something which is valuable, which is the kids. There are a couple of other different kinds of amulets that we get that are associated with uh, infants, one of which is pierced 
teeth, particularly canines. Canine canines, in fact. Dog canines, dog teeth. Uh, the sharp, pointy ones, the biting teeth. And these things are pierced through the top. Both in the classical text and in the archaeological record, they are associated with infants. And these things are described as pendants which are used to protect during teething. Um, I first came across these things several years ago and written various things about them. I have quite recently in my life had a teething infant and it has changed my understanding of how these objects worked. So there are suggestions that they're supposed to be worn around the neck and this kind of would work, but infants pick up things and put them in their mouths and chew them. That might have provided some pain relief in these objects as well. Um, But there is also a magical uh, concept which is like cures like. That's probably what these pendants are designed to do. So they're taking the sharp, biting, pointing teeth. These are the pain-causing teeth of a certain animal, and they're putting it onto a, a young infant who's ex, who is experiencing pain. And maybe that object is meant to challenge, channel the pain, take it away. Maybe it's the act of removing it caused pain, and that pain has disassociating the child's pain. All these concepts could kind of work in the Roman psyche, like that, there is a logic to that in the ancient world that you do, you cause this pain now and it stops this pain later. Um, and we find them throughout Roman Britain. The final thing in this category is a group of objects I want to talk about called crepundia. Crepundia are amulet sets. These are some of the most amazing pieces of evidence for magic in Roman Britain because it's just like a group of really cool, weird and wacky different symbols. There's a beautiful group from Colchester. There are three different groups from Colchester. One of them has a lunula on it, different jet beads, some amber beads, some other coloured things as well. What Crepundia is supposed to do is attract the evil eye basically by having all this weird garish stuff brought together in a single group of objects. They're really fascinating things. No pun intended. Another group of crepundia that I'm thinking about comes from a grave at Butts Road in Colchester. And this includes a unique amber figurine, which probably depicts an African bust, um, probably a woman. It contains a tiny phallic pendant with wings. It contains three pierced coins of various different emperors, the oldest of which is of Hadrian. So it was 300 years old by the time it went into the ground. Um, It contains a tiny little bell. So we mentioned tintinabulized wind chimes and the sound of laughter, but also just the sound of bells making noise could be magical as well. And all these, and and there are beads associated with this as well. And all these things together, they are individual different amulets, but they've been brought together to create like an ultra powerful magical object. This is that coefficient of weirdness. Have all these weird, wacky, important, bespoke things brought together to do magic. Did um, did different rocks and gems have different magical properties? So this is exactly like the jet and the amber and the crepundia that I just mentioned. Yes. And again, there's weird and wonderful things. So different materials were understood in the ancient world to have different properties. You only look at the work of Pliny, the elder, to be able to find some of those kind of links between what natural materials were thought to do. In Roman Britain in particular, there are several different types of stone which were thought to have power. I'll start with gemstones, if I can. So gemstones, semi-precious stones, were often worn in finger rings, so settings in gold, silver, copper, alloy, iron rings, and these are super common finds from Roman Britain. There are loads and loads of them um, all over the place. There are a very small group of them, 
which are magical gemstones, and they incorporate some of the elements that I've already talked about. So weird arcane words, magical symbols, and these things are all brought together. There is one in particular called the Wellwyn Charm. So it's from Wellwyn. It's in the British Museum. And it is one of the most complicated objects that I've seen. Um, it is about a centimetre and a half tall. So it's a ring setting. So it's a tiny wee thing. And on it, in the centre of it, there is a tiny carving of the goddess Isis. On the left, there's one of the, the Egyptian goddess Bess. There's a lioness on it. There are seven Greek vowels inscribed around these figures. There is a seven-toothed key on the top of it. There is a uterine symbol, which in the Roman world looks like an octopus. Um, and these things are all wrapped together in an Ouroboros, so a snake eating its own tail. This is a centimetre and a half tall. It's tiny, the evidence on this. And around the outside of this gemstone is... Um, a large word written in Greek, which is a palindrome. I'm going to try and say it. I'm going to try and say it phonetically. Amenin Aberoth era Thorabel Aemenea. This is one letter shy of a 32-letter palindrome. Palindromes and doing weird and strange things with words. Again, that's arcane. That is magic. That adds extra power to a thing. Why I'm talking about this in terms of stones is because this object was also made out of red hematite, which is bloodstone. The uterus symbol on it and all the other different elements together can be used to create an argument that this object was designed to protect women, specifically from women's health issues. So something to do with uh, uterus pain, perhaps heavy periods, maybe childbirth. There is also a concept in ancient medicine of the wandering womb, which is the idea that a woman's uterus is not fixed in place and can fly around her body, causing all kinds of strange uh, health problems. I'm not going to dwell on that, but if you'd like to find out more, find the work of Professor Helen King. She's written excellent things about it. These specific symbols were carved on this specific material because it looks a little bit like blood, because that's the association with this material and what it's designed to do. So stones have power. There is another different type of gemstone, which is really popular and really widely recorded, but not from Britain, from places like North Africa and the Middle East, which is a yellow gemstone inscribed with a scorpion, and that's designed to protect you from scorpion stings. And there are other different types of these objects which protect you from drowning, that might protect you from headaches, protect you from the one that protects you from backache, which shows a guy leaning over cutting corn and he's like he's got a right angle in his spine. Um, you don't want to have that, so you wear the gemstone to protect yourself. These are really common objects more widely. We stray into what is magic and what is religion a little bit when I introduced that the most common gemstone in Roman Britain, worn on fingerings, depicts the god Bonus Aventus. Bonus Aventus is the husband consort of the goddess Fortuna. Fortuna might be a more familiar concept. She's the goddess of good luck. She's good fortune. Her partner, Bonus Aventus, is the god of good things, good times. And people obviously resonated with that and wore fingerings with this god on it to try and get good things in their life. Different stones had different powers. 
that is one conclusion to draw from this. In Britain, there are two types of stone which are particularly associated with magic, and that is jet and amber. Mentioned these under Crepundia. Jet or Whitby jet, which is something that you might be familiar with, is a it's an endemic material. You find it on the east coast of Yorkshire on the beach near Whitby, unsurprisingly. Um, I personally find it better a little bit further south of that, Robin Hood's Cave, that kind of area. Jet, Whitby Jet, is a black Jurassic coal. It's probably made from fossilized monkey puzzle trees. Um, And it's a material that is used in Britain from the Neolithic and into the Bronze Age, the Iron Age. But in the Roman period, it really explodes in its popularity, particularly in the 3rd and 4th centuries AD. There are different sources of jet on the continent in other parts of the Roman Empire and in Germany and bits of Spain. But British jet is definitely exported into the continent, such as its importance. Now, jet has power because of its natural properties. The most important of this is that it is electrostatic. So if you have a piece of jet and you can rub it, it produces a static charge. You can use that to attract hair and cloth fibers to the object. There's just an inherent literal power that exists in these things. And that was probably used to give it a ritual and magical function in the ancient world. Most jet objects were probably fairly mundane. So there are loads of beads and there are loads of bangles and hairpins in particular made out of this stuff. But there are a couple of groups of objects which definitely have a magical flavor to them. There are about 10 or 11 pendants with a medusa face on them and in three or four of them that medusa face has been worn smooth by somebody rubbing it to produce that electrostatic charge we can show that kind of engagement with creating this weird power of the object through how that object has survived there's a different group of objects depicting um, miniature bears and tigers and they have the same thing, that people have rubbed them and they've been worn smooth to, to create this electrostatic charges in the object. There's an inherent physical power within them that becomes linked to them being used in protection of people. The jet medusas are particularly associated also with young adult women, but they were probably quite high status. The bears and cats are associated with greys of quite tragically deceased infants. So there are groups which these two different classes of object were kind of designed to protect protection after death and into the afterlife is an important concept in the ancient world. So grave goods is one of our really good sources of evidence for some of these things. Amber is very similar to jet specifically because it's also electrostatic, but Amber is super rare in Britain. There aren't comparatively, there aren't that many different objects. There are seven or eight different figurines, things. Most objects made out of Amber are little beads. And there isn't really a good source of amber from Britain. So this stuff is coming from the continent through parts of northern Italy. Um, Amber is talked about extensively in various ancient sources about its sensory properties, that it produces almost like a fruity smell if you can rub it. And also because of this action of rubbing it, you're going to produce electrostatic effect. And then it's made into weird and wonderful different objects which were designed to protect people from the evil eye because it's an unusual material used in an unusual way and it did strange things. One last question before we finish, then I promise we won't be bugging you anymore. I'm interested to know if any of these objects we've been talking about have been found in any of the Laras. So basically for people that don't know what that is, basically altars of worship at home. Can we find any of those in those places at all? I'm not sure of direct kind of material culture evidence that links one to the other, but 
certain use of bullye, the, the bullye, the bubble pendants, there is some literary sources that suggest that once the young boy, as we can prove, it's not just young boys who wear them, after the young person has finished using them, they have to donate that object to the household gods, to the lares. So that might have been placed in that sort of situation. Um, there was... It is likely to have been family amulets, things that are passed down between brothers and sisters, generation to generation, particularly if there is a link between that object working. If it was effective, if it was efficacious, we know that that pierced tooth pendant stopped the kid having teething pains. Let's keep hold of that. Let's pass it to somebody else. Let's keep it moving down the line. So power of objects as well can become associated through kind of curating them through their own little object biography. So if they are going to turn up in that situation, I'm afraid I don't really know about that, but it's entirely possible and I wouldn't be surprised to find that happening. So, Adam, this has been um, (laughs) slightly slightly detoured through fallacies, but uh, really, really interesting. If people wanted to learn more about this, what what sort of books should they read or where where could they find you? I don't have any specific work now to plug, but you can find me on Google Scholar if you really need to, um, and on Twitter and Blue Sky. But I want to promote the work of two colleagues of mine. So if you want to have a really good understanding of some of these things I'm talking about, go find The Scent of Ancient Magic by Britta Eger, which is a sensory archaeology, which is really exploring kind of human sensory engagement with what magic was. Um, and also find Living and Cursing in the Roman West, Cursed Habits and Society by Dr. Stuart Mackay. Um, because I haven't really talked about cursed habits. I've mostly talked about amulets and cursed habits is kind of the counterpoint to this cursed habits is how you use magic to harm people and you'll find all that in that little text as well or we can just ask you to come back and do it very happy to do so i think that is a good plan what do you think chris yeah absolutely amazing adam it's been great having you on thank you so much for joining us it's been a pleasure thank you our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.